on any given Sunday morning, uh, I think there are various sort of, we'll, we'll kind of call them categories of people who fill this, this sanctuary um, in each of our services. And so I'm going to give four of them that I try to think about each Sunday. These are not perfect. I'm not saying that everybody fits into one of these, and you're certainly not in one of these and locked into it for life. But as we look at Scripture, I like to be aware of the fact that among us on any given Sunday are those who are genuinely curious about Christianity or maybe genuinely apathetic toward Christianity. They, you, you've not been saved. You aren't sure why you would need to be saved. You're not sure you would want to be saved. You're definitely not sure if the Jesus that we talk about here is the means by which you could be saved should you decide that you either need to or you want to. You're a little bit like Marshawn Lynch. You're just like here so you don't get fined, you know? That's a football joke. Um, a niche football joke because it's Super Bowl Sunday and it felt obligatory. Okay, we're moving on. You're, you're, maybe you're curious about Christianity. Maybe you're apathetic toward the whole deal. Maybe you're antagonistic toward the whole thing. But you're here. The second category are those who come in to the sanctuary on any given Sunday and they find themselves in a set of life circumstances that have them like truly desperate. Just utterly broken by the circumstances that exist around them and looking for anything that could bring hope or light into the brokenness and the darkness of what they're going through. And maybe have tried other stuff and remembered from when they were a kid and they got dragged to church that like, well, maybe that place has something for me. Like maybe there's something about Jesus that could help me fix my situation or could bring some light or some hope into whatever's going on. To both of those groups, uh, we're glad you're here and want you to know that it is not that you've got to get everything fixed up before you come in here or that you've got to get everything solved on your own before Jesus would maybe be available to you. Jesus said he came to call uh, sinners to repentance, not the righteous. He came for uh, not the healthy, but the sick. And so uh, we're glad that you're here. Two other categories. Uh, one that I would call the pridefully forgetful. You've been saved, but whether earnestly or subtly, you've sort of started to believe that you deserved it. That like, you've like read your own press clippings a little bit, and you're like, hey, you know what? Jesus is lucky to have me. Uh, I'm, I'm so sanctified, or my morality is so good that uh, I think Jesus kicks back and thinks to himself, oh, I'm sure I'm glad that that person joined our team. You've just forgotten the depths from which Jesus saved you. You've lost sight a little bit of the depths from which Jesus pulls all of us. And you just need a reminder. And follower of Jesus, that can happen to us at any time, to differing degrees in different ways. And so sometimes we come in here and we just need a gospel reminder. The last category is 
what I would call the humbly grateful. You've been saved. You remember exactly the depths from which you were saved. And there's like a palpable sense of gratitude that you live with because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. I don't know which of those you may fall into, and I'm not saying they're a perfect fit for every individual, but our passage this morning in Genesis 28 has one very resounding thing to say to all of those groups, and it's the same thing to all of those groups. The gospel is good news for all who encounter it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this in two chunks. We're actually going to back up into chapter 27 and get sort of a rolling start because the first 11 verses or so of Genesis 28 lay out the context for the narrative thing that happens in verses 12 to 22. So we're going to work with uh, sort of the context first and then we'll get into this dream that Jacob has. That's the back half of the chapter. And then we're just going to step back and reflect on what we see in this narrative and that statement. There will be no tips for living a better life. There will not really be any specific application points. If you get up and leave, I won't be offended. We're just going to reflect on that statement and why and how the gospel is good news for everyone who encounters it. So if you've got Genesis open there in front of you, I'm going to start in Genesis 27, verse 41, and I'm going to read through Genesis 28, verse 11. It says this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother. When the words of her older son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, listen, Your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. So now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him for a few days until your brother's anger subsides, until your brother's rage turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send for you and bring you back from there. Why should I lose you both in one day? So Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm sick of my life because of these Hethite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here like these Hethite girls, what good is my life? So Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Padan Aram. Esau realized that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of of Neboeth. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. Stop there. Esau is in a murderous rage. Blessing has been stolen, and at the end there of chapter 27, he says, the days of mourning my father are approaching. 
Isaac's going to die at some point soon. And once we're done with that, I will kill my brother Jacob. Okay. Is this like when something minor and annoying happens and you sort of, to be funny, say something very extreme in response, like a person sort of pulls over in front of you in traffic a little too closely and you're like, oh, I'm going to smack him upside the head. It's like, oh, yeah. he's in a different car and you're not actually going to do that. But you say that because it like feels good. You're consoling yourself with rage there because of the minor inconvenience that you experienced. Or is it that Jacob or Esau actually thinks to himself, I will murder my brother. Well, think through the circumstances. After Isaac dies, if Esau kills Jacob, who gets everything that just went to Jacob? Esau. And what does he really want? All the blessing that his brother stole from him. So, is it possible that he means it? Absolutely. Rebecca thinks that he means it. So she says to Jacob, you need to leave. But we might as well make something out of it. So why don't you go to my family in Haran, marry someone from Laban's household, not one of these Canaanite women's like your, like women like your brother has done, and then not only will you save your life, but you'll also gain a wife, two birds, one stone. What is there to dislike? She goes to Isaac says, I can't handle it. If he marries one of these Canaanite women, let's send him somewhere else. And Isaac, at the start of chapter 28, summons Jacob to him and says, you need to go at once to Padanaram so that you can get a wife. Marry someone who's adjacent to your mother's family. But then there's something interesting in verse three. Remember back in chapter 27, if you were here, when Jacob tricked Isaac. We were told that when Isaac discovers that he's been fooled, he's trembling with rage over what's happened. He's so mad that he's been deceived and that now he looks foolish because of what Jacob and Rebekah conspired to do, that he's like shaking visibly with anger. Well, now here in chapter 28, it appears that he's come to terms with what's happened. It's like, this is the situation. It is what it is. I blessed you. He speaks that blessing again as he's sending Jacob away. That does not make sense to us. Mostly because the idea and the power of a father's blessing is lost to us culturally. It also doesn't really make sense to us that like if Jacob got that blessing through this duplicitous at best but manipulative at worst sort of way, can't Isaac just say, hey Esau, come here. That was weird. I'm blessing you. Can't he just get like a do-over on that? Like this one wasn't real. I got tricked. This is the actual blessing. Like the cultural thing happening around the speaking of a father's blessing is very lost to us. Either way, by the time you get to chapter 28, he's come to terms with it. So he sends Jacob off. Esau sees what was told to Jacob and he's still grasping after what he feels like should have been his. And he thinks to himself, ah, I get it. Dad was just mad that I married Canaanite women. If I go get a different wife, maybe I'll get back into dad's good graces. So he goes to the house of Ishmael, finds a wife, and now he has three wives, which Kurt mentioned last week, never works out well for anyone in scripture. In fact, Jacob is going to go to Padanaram 
to Haran, to the house of Laban, and he's going to come home with four wives. And that is going to be a disaster for everyone involved in a myriad of different ways. Jacob leaves where the family is living, verse 10, heads north toward Haran. He reaches a certain place, spends the night there because the sun is setting, and he grabs a rock. He puts it under his head. Geographically, this is what's happening. Most of us aren't familiar with this area of the world. A little typo up there. That should be an N, not an M. Haran, not Haram. So Jacob and Isaac and the whole family lives in Beersheba. He's going to go north to Haran, this region of the world at that time known as Padan Aram. If that map is still not helpful, Beersheba is just south of Jerusalem, and this would be like walking on foot all the way to Aleppo in Syria, which is on the border of Syria and Turkey. If that still means nothing to you, this is like walking from Kansas City to Indianapolis. It's like 450 to 500 miles on foot. Historically, in the book of Genesis, Abraham has already made this journey. Ur of the Chaldeans is up there north in Padanaram as well. He comes all the way down into the land of Canaan. Isaac sent his servant to find him a wife all the way up to Haran and all the way back. That was like a thousand mile round trip journey. And now Jacob is going to make that same trip. We're told that he goes some distance, and as night falls, he grabs this stone and lays down. He goes to a place called Luz of the Chaldeans, or Luz. Um, He renames that place Bethel, which we'll get to in a little while. So there's the gap there. That's like 75 or 80 miles. If that doesn't compute well for you, if you leave here and you start on your journey on foot all the way to Indianapolis, you are past Concordia, but not to Boonville yet. That's how far he's made it. It's probably more than one night. This isn't the first night. But he lays down to go to sleep. Grabs a rock. Why? The text is telling you he doesn't have anything else. Your version uh, might tell you that he grabs it and puts it under his head. Your translation might say he put it near his head. So he could be using it as a pillow because he's got nothing else. He also could be using it as a place marker. What would normally mark your place when you go to camp somewhere? A giant tent, right? You'd put your tent up and it would be very apparent someone is there right now. He doesn't have that. So CSB says he puts this rock near his head, like marking the place where he's laying. Presumably so if someone is traveling at night, they trip over the rock before they step on his body as he's laying there out in the open on the ground. Either way, the indication is he's got nothing with him. In Genesis chapter 32, as he gets ready to leave Padan Aram in the house of Laban, he's going to remark on the Lord's goodness to him by saying, I crossed the Jordan River, you can see that, and didn't even have a staff. Now I come back with all of these flocks and herds and look at how the Lord has blessed me. So he's got nothing as he goes. And it is in that spot that the Lord is going to show up and speak this incredible blessing over him. To that guy, unbidden, unasked for, God appears. And what we see in what happens from verses 12 down to the end of the chapter is that the gospel is good news for all who encounter it. So let's, let's read it. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky. And God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him 
saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. He said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. There is this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it, named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if, he, if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. The stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all you gave me. Jacob, the younger of two sons, fleeing for his life because he's gotten a blessing from his father that he should not have gotten, lays down and goes to sleep and has this dream. Just step back for a second. A younger son swindled his wealthy father for a blessing that wasn't supposed to be his. Doing so, he sent his older brother into this derision-filled, murderous rage. He's heading a long way from home, has absolutely nothing, but apparently none of that has altered his father's love for the son. Does that sound familiar? That's the prodigal son, right? I mean, the, the details are a little bit different, but the structure is the same. A young son takes what wasn't supposed to be his yet. He goes away only to end up with nothing. The older son can't believe the scandal of it all and yet the father is undaunted in his love for the son. And how do we see that play out? Well, God comes to Jacob in this dream. In verse 12, a Hebrew scholar has, has said that what takes place in verse 12 in the very start of 13 is like this very staccato like punchy sort of way of saying what the dream involved. The English fills it out for us so it makes sense. But in Hebrew, it's seven words. There, a ladder to heaven. Then six words. Angels are on it. Then four words. Ah, the Lord. And it happens in quick succession like that. So let's just take the components. There's a stairway. Your translation might say a ladder that reaches up into heaven. We're also told that there are angels going up and down on the ladder. And at this point, you get all these intrusive questions into your brain. What did the thing look like? How does it reach into the heavens? What are the angels doing? What did the angels look like? Uh, now you're thinking about the guitar solo and you're like on YouTube <laughs> because you want to listen to the song really quickly. All of those are not necessarily wrong, but they're ultimately unhelpful questions. We don't know exactly what it was that Jacob saw, nor does nailing down exactly what it was help us to understand what's happening. Because the point of the passage is not the nature of the thing. I think the thing that we're supposed to notice in the dream is that God, by his grace, has chosen in this unique way in a dream to like link heaven and earth. Right? The next thing that happens is that you see the Lord it's the start of verse 13. 
If you sat down and you read Genesis 1-1, the very start of the book, all the way through where we are right now in one sitting, you took like an, an hour's worth of time or an hour and a half and you read all the way through it, you'd get to Genesis 28 and you'd be like, oh, I remember another time somebody tried to build a tower up into heaven. It was sinful then. So why was it that the Tower of Babel was a problem? But here in Genesis 28, this is no longer a problem, which ought to tell you that it wasn't just the tower itself that was the problem. It was that the people of Babel wanted to like elbow their way into heaven. Why? So that they could rival God. We can be like him in this way. That's sin. It's not sin for God in his grace to condescend down to earth for the sake of visiting humanity. That's what happens here because you, then you arrive at the apex of the vision and Jacob sees the Lord. The CSB says that he's standing at Jacob's side. If you've got an ESV or an NIV or an NLT, it says that the Lord is at the top of the stairway or the top of the ladder. Either way, he's supposed to be the focal point. The other stuff is described so that your attention goes to the Lord. Throughout scripture, we say this all the time. God is the main point of everything that's happening in every section, on every page, in every passage of Scripture. When he actually physically shows up in a place, it ought to grab your attention and make you say, why is he there? What is he doing? Well, in this passage, then he speaks, and he tells us exactly why it is that he's there. He's there to bless. Verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then he goes on to restate all the promises that were stated to Abraham. All the promises that had been stated to Isaac. He tells Jacob, you're going to have progeny, descendants. You're going to be given parcels of land, right? This land where you're living. You're going to have presence, my presence. Any good preacher can get everything into the same three letters. Progeny, parcels, that was the hard one. Presence. But he gives that blessing to him, speaks that to Jacob. And now as you're reading Genesis, you should have no doubt the promises were given to Abraham. They were definitively passed on to Isaac. And now they've definitively passed on to Jacob. It's not because Isaac spoke a blessing. It's because the father in heaven now speaks it. It's not because Jacob deceived dad. It's because God sovereignly chose. Right before Jacob and Esau were born, the older will serve the younger. Now you get it stated. And then in verse 16, you get this response from Jacob. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he starts making declarations. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the presence of the Lord. He's omnipresent. He is fully present with the full uh, scope of his being and the fullness of his attention in every place throughout all of the created order all of the time. But Jacob is not remarking on that. He's, He's remarking on like the special presence of the Lord. Oh, surely the Lord is here for a purpose, to bless. God's special covenantal presence is that he is there with his people all the time for a purpose, for blessing. And that's what Jacob remarks on. And he's so overwhelmed by it. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it that then you're told he was afraid and said, how awesome or what an awesome place 
this is. That's a different use form of the word awesome than we typically use. In our colloquial sense, it's like, oh, this is awesome. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this place is filled with awe, like wonder, because the Lord is there, present in that place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is the place where God has chosen to join together heaven and earth, that angels would be able to go up and down. It's like God has torn through the fabric of the created universe so that he could come down in order to be with his people or his person, in this case, Jacob, in order to bless him. What an awesome place this is. This is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. Bet. That word house means more than a physical structure in biblical parlance. Remember, there is no physical structure. He doesn't have a tent. He doesn't have anything with him. He's just laying on the ground. And he says, this is the house of God. That word means it's, it's the place where like God rules and has authority. That's what a house is. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, when God is giving these promises to Abraham and telling him, all this is going to happen through your son. Abraham says, Genesis 15, 2, Lord, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? It's, it, Abraham's not saying, look, when I die, Eliezer gets my tent. He's saying the heir of everything that I have. The one who is going to replace me as the person of authority right now is not my own son. It's someone else, Eliezer of Damascus. When the Old Testament talks about how one is going to come from the house of David, that's going to be Jesus. It's not saying that there's going to be a child running around in David's palace who's one day going to be the one who rules over the people of Israel. It's that coming out of all that David has authority over will be the Messiah. When the New Testament talks about the church as the house of God, it's not talking about these buildings. It's talking about the, the place and the people over which God has authority, where his kingdom rules and reigns. And so Jacob says, surely this is the house of God. Like This is where he rules. This is the place where he has authority. This is where the Lord reigns. And then he does what people do when they realize and recognize the lordship of God. He worships. He takes that stone. We're told that he, it was near his head. He sets it up as a marker. Does, that, does he like flip it? I don't know exactly what happens. And then he doesn't have much, but apparently he's got a little bit of oil. And so he pours some oil on that stone in order to anoint it. There's like a cost to this, a sacrifice to this worship. He names the place Bethel, Bet-El. Bet house, El, God. This place isn't lose of the, of the Canaanites. This is the very place of God's authority. This is where he rules and where he reigns. And then he makes a vow early in the morning, we're told. Jacob made a vow. It sounds super conditional to us. I mean, it starts with the word if, after all. If God will be with me, if God will watch over me on this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. That's standard vow-making practice in this culture. 
In fact, when you look at it closely, all of the if statements that we would say must be conditional are actually restatements of the promises God's already made to him. If you will be with me, God said that he would be. If you will watch over me, God said that he would. If you will provide for me or bless me, God already said that he would. If you will give this land to me, God already said that he would. In fact, what was the end of God's statement? I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. I'm going to do all of those things. And so Jacob says, as you do that, I will worship you at this place. This will be your house. And I'll give you a tenth of everything I have, which, which is nothing in the moment. But Jacob trusts will be something in the future. And so what is he vowing? Just as I worship the Lord right here, right now, in response to his showing up, his presence with me, his authority in this place, so I will continue to worship him as he continues to be faithful to bring his promises to me. I mean, what an incredible picture we're getting here, both of who God is and also what humanity's response to him ought to be. I mean, the great picture of God in this narrative is the wonder of his being. This is the rumblings of the gospel on the early pages of the Bible. It's the unthinkable nature of his love. There's Jacob, lying, swindling, conniving, blasphemous. Remember back in chapter 27, like he goes in to pretend to be his brother and Isaac's like, how did you hunt so quickly? And Jacob's like, well, the Lord helped me. No, mom just made it. Like, he invokes the name of the Lord into his sinful deception in order to get this blessing from his father. Like, that Jacob, who's now a familial fugitive because one of his, or his brother is so upset that he wants to murder him, that's the guy we got here with no stuff, sleeping out in the open with a rock for a pillow. He does not cry out to God. He does not seek God. He's not asking for God's help. He's not pleading for God's presence. And what does God do? Shows up anyway. And once he shows up, you know what is most remarkable to me? There's no rebuke. There's no condition. Hey, you get cleaned up, I'll do this. You get yourself straightened out, I will bless you. Hey, I want to do all this good for you, but you better cut it with this other stuff. Nope. He just shows up and he says, Jacob, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and then he unloads all these promises. Jacob, I don't love you because of what you can do for me. I don't love you because of what you've done for me up to this point, Jacob. I love you because I've chosen to love you out of the overflow of my very nature and being. That's it. Isn't that the whole point of the prodigal, the prodigal son parable? That the younger son does everything you could think of to forfeit the love of his father and yet doesn't. That's the picture of who God is. That Jacob, God 
in this dream rips through heaven and earth in order to pour out blessing upon. And the, the prodigal son parable from Jesus isn't the only connection between this passage and Jesus' ministry. If you want to flip to John chapter 1, you can. Um, you can just jot it in your notes. I'm going to read it. This is John 1 starting in verse 43. Jesus is at the very start of his ministry. He's calling disciples to himself. John 1 verse 43 says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he referencing? This. You're going to see heaven opened up and angels ascending and descending, but not on a tower, on me, the Son of Man. And so we say to ourselves about Genesis 28, well, what is this thing, what did this tower look like? What did this stairway look like? How does the ladder work? What are the angels doing? And Jesus says, make sure you don't miss the point. It's that God would choose of his own free choice to link heaven and earth in a unique way so as to be present with his people and pour out his blessing and I am the link. You wanna know what that tower looked like? A cross on a hill. where the one who is truly righteous and truly deserving of the blessing of the Lord went and died a sinner's death so that sinners could receive said blessing. You will see greater things than this. Yeah, you were sitting under a fig tree, big deal. We got a lot of those. You're gonna see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending, ascending and descending on me, Jesus says. I'm the link between heaven and earth. I'm the house of God, this loving authority that extends over God's people. I'm the one who's come to bless and to save. And so let's go back to our four categories. The genuinely curious or apathetic or even antagonistic, the utterly desperate, the pridefully forgetful, the humbly grateful. Oftentimes at the end of sermons, I will... Uh, use song lyrics to sort of conclude things. If you're a musical person, you might be like, yeah, I appreciate that you do that. If you're not a musical person, you'd be like, here he goes again. Why do I do that? Neurobiology tells me you will remember very little of what I say on any given Sunday morning, but your brain will remember song lyrics. That's just how the brain is wired. So, among us on any given Sunday are those who have not been saved, might not be interested in being saved, don't 
think they need to be saved and aren't sure if Jesus is the means by which they could be saved. The gospel has something to say to you. We sing it. There's an old hymn. The lyrics are, Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Then there's an invitation. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. That's the invitation. Right in the middle of your apathy, your antagonism, in the middle of your curiosity, come home. The second verse. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading? Tarry is just an old-timey word that means wait. Pleading for you and for me. Notice there, he's not pleading with you as though he needs to beg you to come to him. He's pleading for you, like on your behalf at the throne of God. Why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercy for you and for me. And then the summons, come home. Come home. The gospel's good news for all who encounter it. In the middle of your apathy, in the middle of your antagonism, in the middle of your curiosity, there's this incredible summons. Come home. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't need to be in the right place, say the right words. Just come home. The second group was the utterly desperate. There was a song that came out a number of years ago at this point, and if you're tuned into these sort of things, it stirred up a little bit of controversy within the church because of one word. So I'm going to change that one word. That word was reckless. I'm going to switch it. But the chorus of this song said, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. Here's the key. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God. And then there was this bridge. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of your darkness. Whatever created the circumstances, yeah, you couldn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Still, he gives himself away. What's the gospel have to say to someone who's just utterly desperate? It has to say, you don't need to add to the weight of your circumstances the need to muster up the strength to save yourself. He's given himself to you. 
we often, to, to those two groups, we rightly and biblically talk about counting the cost of following Jesus. That's right from his own mouth. What we have to give up to follow Jesus, you have to give up everything. That's the summons. And yet I think it's equally worth, if you're in one of those two camps, counting the cost of not following Jesus. I mean, ask yourself honestly. Of all the places that you've tried to find happiness and peace and comfort and contentment, have you? I mean, how happy are you actually? How peace-filled? How contented? How comforted? That's the cost of not following him. And yet, what does Jesus say? If you lose your life, you will gain it. That's the gift of the gospel. The pridefully forgetful. Look, all of us end up in this, all of us who are following Jesus end up in this place at times. And yet the, the message is the same. We just, we sing the words of the gospel. In fact, you've probably sung these lyrics if you've been following Jesus for a long time. So, so many times you don't even think about them anymore. I'll start singing them, you'll start singing them. They just like, they flow out of you. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee why prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love here's my heart Lord Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I'm just prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, prone to think that it was something I did that saved me, prone to forget the depths from which he pulled me. Take my heart, Lord, seal it, bind me to you like a fetter that I wouldn't forget. I mean, the gospel is good news to forgetful, pharisaical followers of Jesus. You don't need something different than you needed when you were first saved. You need the same thing, to remember that God in his kindness ripped through the created order of heaven and earth and the person of Jesus Christ in order to save you. Last, the humbly grateful. We sing this song all the time. What love could remember no wrongs we have done omniscient all knowing he counts not their sum what do you do with them thrown into a sea without bottom or shore our sins they are many his mercy is more what's the response it's a lot like jacob praise the lord his mercy is more, how much more? Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What do you need as a humbly grateful follower of Jesus? You need to wake up every single morning and remember what did he save us from? What did he do with our sin? 
What's my response to that? We often talk about the gospel as if it's this one-time past event. I believed at this time, in this place, in response to this thing, at this camp, or whatever happened. Believing the gospel is an everyday thing. You wake up every single day and believe that my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And the response is always the same. Praise the Lord. We'll end with one more song. It's maybe the most well-known Christian song of all time. Because what are we really looking at here when we look at what God does in the life of Jacob? We're looking at grace. Oftentimes we think, well, God, God is, the grace part of the Bible is the New Testament part, the Jesus part. I hope one of the things you're seeing as we work through the book of Genesis is that that grace explodes off of every single page. So much so that Jacob, if he had the verbiage for it, likely would have sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Pause there. Not like someone else. I mean, Jacob would understand. The wretch here is me. I once was lost. Literally, I'm wandering out in the middle of nowhere with a rock for a pillow. But now I'm found. Why? Because God in his grace chose to condescend down to him. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear. Jacob was afraid and he said, what an awesome place this is. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. As he tilts that stone up puts a little oil on it and says, surely this is the house of God. It's the gate of heaven. The gospel is good news for all who encounter it and you need to encounter it always. It is the answer for every situation and circumstance and life stage that you will ever find yourself in. And what you will be met by every time you encounter it is the amazing grace of the Lord. Amen. Amen. We're going to close in song, but we're not going to sing any of those because we already sang them. So if you're able, let's stand and we'll close in song.